Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The last three weeks of reading in the Old Testament have been hard. We discover that David is a monster in the affair with Bathsheba and Uriah. He discovers he's a monster when Nathan tells him this story about a rich person who steals the you of a neighbor. And now we find out the tragic end of one of David's sons, Absalom. The ancient church consisted of very wise readers of Scripture. And they suggested to us that as readers in the first half millennium of the church's life, from the end of the New Testament through about A.D. 500 to 600 or so, they suggested do four things when you come across Old Testament scriptures that are hard. First, they say, listen to the story. Pay attention to it. Let it wash over you and just teach you what it has to say and its own merits. But then go back over it and ask three different kinds of questions. Are there questions here we learn about faith, about hope, and about love? Are there ways in which in the first place in terms of faith, we're taught to look ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming? Are there ways, second, that we're supposed to learn about hope, about God's intention to build his kingdom, to take us to heaven, or to make new heavens and new earth? And third, is it possible that we're taught here something about love, about God's love for us and our call to love one another? Well, I'd like to do that with you today. First, going through the story and just letting it have its say. Now, we cover, a lot of ground has been covered since last week. Last week, we were in 2 Samuel 12. Today, we're in 2 Samuel 18. And there's a lot that happens to get us from chapter 12 to chapter 18. And I felt like I needed to fill that in so that you have a little context for how Absalom wound up with his head stuck in a tree. And uh, our, today's story is, if you're using the Chew but true, Pew Bible, is on pages 228 and 229. But the story goes all the way back to 222. I'm just going to hit some highlights leading up to today's story. What Samuel is doing in these chapters is describing the fulfillment of what Nathan told David was going to happen. The sword shall never depart from your house. And just as David had taken Bathsheba and murdered Uriah, so sexual violation and death are unleashed within David's house. Amnon, who is David's firstborn son and the nation's crown prince, craftily 
and deviously forces himself on his stepsister, Tamar. Horribly and entirely too predictably, no sooner are his lust and will to power violently satisfied than his emotions flip. 2 Samuel 13, verse 15. Then Amnon was seized with a very great loathing for her. His loathing was even greater than the lust he had felt for her. Now when you violate a person according to Exodus and Deuteronomy, you are obligated to marry them. But Amnon is not willing to do that with Tamar. And so he commands his servant, rid me of this woman, throw her out and bolt the door behind her. He won't even say her name. First he robs her of her innocence and then of her very identity. And though David is furious with Amnon, and though he knows that it's his job as king, as 2 Samuel 8 says, to administer justice and equity to all his people, David does nothing to address the wrong done to his daughter Tamar. When King David, says 2 Samuel, when King David heard of all these things, he became very angry, but he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him, for he was his firstborn. There is no mention of love for his violated daughter. His sin of omission is shameful. Now enter Absalom. Tamar's full brother, Amnon's half-brother, who is the center of today's story, but we still got a lot of ground to cover. For two years, Absalom silently nurses his rage against Amnon for violating his sister and leaving her desolate and shamed. His subsequent actions betray fury against his father as well. Absalom launches a foolhardy, faithless, and ultimately fateful design to right the wrong done to his sister and then to displace his father as king. Just as his own father, David, had orchestrated Uriah's death, Absalom orchestrates Amnon's murder. He lures him to a party and has his men assassinate him. Absalom then goes into self-exile for three years. David, of course, is grieved. He's lost his firstborn, and his kingdom has lost its crown prince. But again, David does nothing, and he eventually accepts Absalom back into Jerusalem. And 2 Samuel 13, 39 says, And the heart of the king went out, yearning for Absalom, for he was now consoled over the death of Amnon, and yet he keeps him at arm's length. Now, with the death of David's firstborn, Absalom has as good a claim as anyone to be next in line for the throne. Besides that, he is of regal appearance. 
Listen to 2 Samuel 14, 25 through 26 and its description of, of Absalom. Now, in all Israel, there was no one to be praised so much for his beauty as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. When he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, and it was five to six pounds. No member of an 80s hairband had hair as magnificent as Absalom's. And it probably was even grander than my early 70s afro. I don't know. I wasn't there. But even though I cut my hair more than once a year, it probably never would have added up to five or six pounds worth of hair over the year, over the year. So I'll give him that. And nobody outranked him in narcissism. We're almost invited by the text to imagine him going like, oh please, just how do you like the locks today? Is it a good hair day or a bad hair day? Actually, I'm really gorgeous, don't you think? Gradually, Absalom starts showing up at the city gates the place where judges settled disputes. And he says to plaintiffs, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no one deputed by the king to hear you. If only I were judge in the land, then all who had a suit or cause might come to me, and I would give them justice. Whenever people came near to do obeisance to him, says the narrator, he would put out his hand and take hold of them and kiss them. Thus, Absalom did to every Israelite who came to the king for judgment. And so Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Four years later, Absalom has won such a following that he can muster them at Hebron, which was David's original capital, and prepare to march on Jerusalem. It's at this point that David decides to flee rather than risk the destruction of the city that he loves so much, the city of God, Jerusalem. He leaves behind ten concubines to satisfy the lusts that David himself had awoken in Absalom back in the days of Bathsheba. And of course, he leaves behind a few spies. Fast forward to today's passage. 2 Samuel 18, page 228, 229. Absalom and his army come after David. Foolishly, as it turns out, David still loves his wayward son and tells his generals, especially Joab, his general-in-chief, deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. Well, it doesn't work out that way. Atop his royal mule in a thick oak forest, Absalom's head gets stuck in a tree. Now, when I was a kid in Sunday school, 
this incident was authoritatively presented to me as Absalom's long hair getting tangled in the thick branches of an oak. And that's pretty plausible since it's the one detail of Absalom's appearance that was brought out to us and no doubt would be a, a pretty sweet ironic source for Absalom, uh, would be a, a pretty sweet ironic reason for the narcissist Absalom to meet a bad end. Still the text doesn't say exactly how his head got stuck, just that his head got caught his head caught fast in the oak and he was left hanging between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Alive and hanging in an oak, that is, until Joab, against David's direct orders, strikes him dead which is a score that David tells Solomon that he needs to settle after his own death. It's a sad, sad tale. And the narrator calls our attention to David's lament, his sadness over a son who did not deserve his love and whom he had not loved especially well, but whom he did love. Oh, my son Absalom, my son my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The poignancy of the story is caught by singer-songwriter Pierce Pettis in his song, Absalom, Absalom. You were the laughing boy who bounced upon my knee. You learned to play the harp and use the, hepper, the shepherd's sling, always watching my impressionable son, oh Absalom, what have I done? You were watching when I took a good man's wife and gave the orders for his murder just to cover up the crime. All the vanity, cruel arrogance and greed, oh Absalom, you learned it all from me. Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, my son, caught in the, in the tangles of deceit, hanging lifeless from that tree. Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, my son, come and smear me with the branches of that tree, hyssop dipped in innocent blood to make me clean. Let an old man's broken bones once more rejoice. Oh, Absalom, you were my little boy. The ancient church says, look closely at the story and see if there aren't lessons for us about faith, hope, and love. First, faith. Recall in today's gospel reading, Jesus says, Look beyond the mere story of the wilderness wandering and the provision of bread. And look beyond my provision of bread for 5,000. Look 
to the way God has been preparing all along to provide me as bread, capital B, of life, to satisfy a hunger that no physical bread could ever satisfy. Just so in the story of Absalom and David, we can see first, not just the frailty of David, his failures as a father, the narcissism and the usurping spirit of his son, but we can see ourselves as in a mirror, our own sad, sin-racked lives. But second, in this story, we can see a foretaste of a perfect king. Not a king who doesn't know how to love his own kids, nor a usurping wannabe king, but a king who was willing to be left hanging between heaven and earth from his own tree. Second, there's a lesson of hope. Hope says, look for the kingdom. Look for the promise of heaven. Look for the promise of new heavens and new earth. And the overall story of scripture says that a kingdom is coming where a better David will, will, will cause righteousness and equity to prevail. Now, we are not capable of manipulating that kingdom into existence, conjuring it, forcing it, wishing it into existence. And for that reason, we can be in our day and time passionately and effectively committing, committed to doing what we can to promote righteousness and equity, to righting wrongs. And yet, because of pictures like David, the height of God's rule on this earth, well, that may be Solomon, and Absalom, a gifted son, as we see how messed up they were through whom God was working, we can be patient with the frailties, the foibles, and the failures of generations who've come before us. Thy kingdom come. And at the same time, we can not only hunger and thirst for God's righteousness and for God's kingdom, we can taste it in some measure in his presence among us, among one another, and his power to work in our world. And we can let it infuse us and shape the way we live and tell and invite others to join us. As Augustine said in the city of God, so long then as the heavenly city is wayfaring on earth, as long as we're not there yet, she invites citizens from all nations and all tongues and unites them all into a single band. That is your call and mine together, sisters and brothers. And then third, love's read of the passage. As much as David loved his wayward son, our heavenly father loves us 10,000 times more. 
and loves us better and loves us more effectively. He loves his sons and he loves his daughters. And when he saw his son hanging from a tree between heaven and earth, his heart wept and he said, it is all forgiven because it was all taken into him. And thankfully, the God of love has given us a pattern to live, not as David in his monstrous years, and not as the narcissist would-be usurper Absalom, but to live as sons and daughters of the king. And that's why he gives us passages like today's epistle, which I would just encourage you to take home and let it pour over you. But a few highlights. Be angry, but do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. Just don't let it seethe for two years, four years, while your mind plays really vicious games, or even more, the next verse, do not make room for the devil. The seething, raging heart can be the devil's playground. But because we have been marked by the Holy Spirit, it doesn't have to be that way. Paul goes on, Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Grant to us, Lord, we pray again this day, the spirit to think and do always those things that are right, that we who cannot exist without you may by you be enabled to live according to your will through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.